We're in the eighth week of our series, Cloud of Witnesses. And in this series, as you know, we've been walking through Hebrews chapter 11, which is commonly called the Hall of Faith. And we're looking at the faithfulness of the men and women in this chapter, because the best way to see what faith looks like is to look to those who've lived by it. Because faith isn't just believing the right things, it's living in light of what we believe. And while we're celebrating the faithfulness of these people, uh, it's not just their faithfulness we're looking at. We're looking at how their faith points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, the author and perfecter of our own faith. And the working definition of faith we've been using is the total alignment of ourselves with the person and promises of Christ. So our will and our intellect, our emotions, our desires, we align all these things with Jesus. And this week, I'm I'm excited because, let's be honest, Hebrews has been a little bit of a dude party so far. You know, it's been a lot of men, and we get to turn to a woman. You know, we get to turn to Rahab, and, and we get to look at her exemplary faith today. Chapter 11, verse 31 says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You know, apparently, Rahab, she just knew how to give a welcome fist bumps, secret handshakes, you know, full of, you know, salutations and greetings, my friends. But uh, there's more to it. You know, this wasn't just about how Rahab goes about welcoming people. There's something deeper to her welcoming. And given the political situation that Rahab lived within, her welcome is absolutely stunning. Uh, So this morning, we actually need to turn to Joshua chapter 2, and we're going to look at three things. Uh, An unfriendly situation, the friendly welcome of Rahab, and uh, the friendly welcome of Christ. So open your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, which is exactly how it sounds, as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. This is the unfriendly situation. Uh, Joshua, the leader of Israel versus the king of Jericho, were swept up into the world of politicians and espionage and war. Uh, You know, Joshua sends spies, but the king of Jericho finds out. And all of this takes place, however, in a bigger storyline at play, and it's this storyline we have to keep in mind. Joshua has just assumed leadership for Moses over the nation of Israel. And Israel stands literally on the edge of inheriting the land that God had promised to them. And Joshua, in the chapter before, has just rallied the troops. He said to them, prepare your provisions. For within three days you're to pass over the Jordan and go take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. The problem, of course, is that the land Israel is about to possess already has inhabitants. It has the Canaanites. The land is already filled with its own cities and kings like Jericho. And God, though, has promised that he'll drive these nations out and give them the land. Which makes us ask, how could God do something like this? Drive entire nations out of their land. So I think before we proceed, we have to give a a quick sketch of the biblical answer to this question. And I realize that the, the sort of difficulties a text like this arises can't be addressed in a single sermon. But after this, if you have any lingering questions, I assure you, Roger will answer them. (laughs) The author of Hebrews puts it really simply. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. The Canaanite culture is summed up in one word, disobedient. 
And this follows the thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, where God says to Israel, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take the land and possess it, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. You see, the Canaanites will be destroyed. They will perish, as the author of Hebrews puts it, because of their disobedience and their wickedness. To get just a small sense of the stunning brutality of their culture, among the many things on their list of vices was child sacrifice. They would take infants and offer them up on the altar of their gods. Their culture was so corrupt and evil that God goes as far as to say that they need to be vomited out of the land. You know, creation itself has a, a visceral, guttural reaction to them. It heaves and gags and must expel them. This is the description of how corrupt their culture is, but there's more still. The ancient nation of Israel were God's people, marked with a promise from God, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And the Hebrew scriptures recount how the Canaanites executed unwarranted attacks on Israel while they are defenseless in the wilderness. So while on the one hand the Canaanites are being judged for their corrupt and depraved culture, they're also being judged for how they have mistreated God's people. That's just the quick sketch. So this, please hear me, is not about genocide. God is dealing with an incredibly dark, hostile, and repulsive culture who have oppressed his people. This is, this is fundamentally about sin. But God does not blindly act against the Canaanites with broad strokes of heavy-handed justice. What we do not want to miss is that God showed mercy to Canaanites who welcomed his people, even to a prostitute's family. So back to the story. The spies of Israel are sent to Jericho, and they stop at Rahab's home. And as the text says, Rahab was a prostitute. She was a sex trade worker. And why the spies stop at a prostitute's house is not explained by the text. But at the very least, this is scandalous. And we have to be careful, though, not to assume too much about why, were they, why they were there, and also not to assume too much about what prostitution meant in, 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 in Rahab's context. You see, prostitution then was deeply associated with their religious practices. Uh, we can't know for certain if Rahab was a cultic prostitute. Uh, some scholars think she were. The text doesn't say. Uh, but either way, prostitution within Canaanite society didn't carry the same taboos that it does for some of us or that it would have for people in ancient Israel. Also, you have to remember, Rahab, she had her own house. Uh, she still has living family. When she's saved, it says not just like her family, but those that were with her. She, she, she comes off as a wealthy woman. There's no hint that she's a prostitute because of bad circumstances. Rather, it's simply presented as her vocation. This is just what she did. This was her career. Uh, it, and it might have been a lucrative career, and it might have even been an influential career within her city. But now, Rahab is caught up into this world of espionage. You know, this has all the makings of a James Bond movie, but remade by uh, Michael Bay. You know, like, you know, like the spies go to her house. You know, of all houses. And the news makes it all the way to the royal palace in Jericho, and their cover is immediately blown. And I mean, come on. 
Like these guys have just spent the past 40 years living in the desert. You know, I imagine this would be like a, de- you know, like a dirty desert person, you know, who hasn't had contact with society in four generations, trying to tail you in the city, you know, w- you know with, with their camel. Like, like, it's just obvious. Their cover is immediately blown. Uh, but in Scripture, there's a bigger story about this. Spying just never goes well for Israel. Um, and now, because of the worst spies in history, Rahab's name echoes through the king's courts. And she finds herself standing uh, between Israel and between Jericho. And she has to decide, who is she going to side with? Which takes us to verses 3 through 7. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True. The men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. To our surprise, because it should be surprising, Rahab sides with Israel. She hides the spies. She diverts the messengers away. But her diversion comes with a huge risk. It's brave. She's committing treason. No, she jeopardizes not just her vocation, but the lives of her family and her very own life. And it's also a little shocking. Why would Rahab, you know, side with a nation that is not her own nation? Especially when Israel's culture would be far more conservative than the cultures she's coming from. Now, her very vocation and livelihood and identity would be condemned in Israel culture. At the best case scenario, she would be an unclean sinner. So why does she extend the friendly welcome to these spies? What's there to gain? Rahab's friendly welcome matters. You know, she didn't just close the doors to the spies. She didn't just hand them over to the authorities. She welcomed them almost as if they were God himself. Look at verses 8 through 11. She said to the spies, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and O.G., yeah, you know me, uh, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is a startling confession from the lips of a Canaanite prostitute. She's saying, I know these things. How? How did Rahab know these things? The author of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews suggests that it was by faith. By faith, she welcomed the spies, and it's by faith she believes what she heard about Israel. She's heard the stories about Israel. She's heard the reports about God fighting for them and going before them and delivering them out of Egypt. And by faith, she believes that the God of the universe is behind it all. And so she tells the spies that the hearts of everyone have melted. Everyone's spirit is destitute. They're afraid because Israel's God is the God in heavens above and the earth beneath. But by faith, she also has to come to face the facts. God is coming in judgment against her and her city for its repulsive darkness. They're about to perish. 
When you encounter the facts and you know you're going to lose, that it's imminent, you only have a few options. You can try to flat out deny what's about to happen. You can stubbornly go down with the ship or you can try to realign yourself. We all know what this is like. You know, the, the skies get a little grayer. The days get a, a little shorter. The weather colder. And then one day you feel it, a tickle in your throat. You know, and it just starts out like a small tickle. But before you know it, you can't breathe through your nose. Your head is throbbing. You have a fever. You know, you've got the winter chills. Uh, and it's always very interesting, you know, when the winter plague comes upon us, how people respond to it. Julia, she is in the flat-out deny-what's-happening camp. You know, refuses to recognize that she's sick, refuses to admit defeat, just presses on with life. Uh, exhibit A this past week, you know, Monday, started feeling sick. I was like, you should go to the doctor. Tuesday, still sick, go to the doctor. You know, denying that you're sick doesn't make you not have strep throat. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am, I'm in the stubbornly go down with the ship camp. You know, I just prepare for death when I get sick. I curl up in bed and I become what philosophers call the man baby. You know, I just whine and I whine and I whine. Uh, the mature and the responsible person uh, attempts to you know, realign themselves. They go see a doctor if necessary. They call in sick to work. Uh, they get the rest they need. They drink lots of fluids. They take uh, zinc, not vitamin C, because that's what the science is telling us, supposedly. You know, they, they accept that they're sick, and they do what they can to set themselves on a trajectory of getting healthy again. We all love those people, don't we? Rahab, she encounters the facts. She's a part of and has contributed to a deeply sinful culture that is about to be judged by God. She can deny it and pretend like it's not going to happen, but that won't make it not happen. She can stubbornly go down with the ship and perish with the rest, but that's not what she does. Rahab realigns herself even though it will mean leaving everything she has behind, her life, her vocation, her identity, her city, uh, Rahab aligns herself with Israel by welcoming the spies because she knows she's encountering the people of the living God. Her reception of them in a very real way is her reception of God. And so she says in verses 12 through 13, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as, as I've dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab asks for a promise. She asks to be rescued, uh, but she's not just concerned with her own life. She intercedes for her whole family. And this is just stunning in her culture because it would be the head of the household, the father who would intercede for a family and negotiate. And here, a woman steps out and defies the cultural expectations of her and intercedes for his family. It's just a tangent, but I think it's really cool. But she, she asks the spies to give their highest pledge to her, to swear by the Lord. And why should they? What do they owe her? This is what she says. As I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Kindness for kindness. But there's so much more at play here. The expression she uses is a Hebrew word, hesed. You say that? Hesed. Because right, we're going to say it a lot. Hesed. Uh, she asks to receive hesed for hesed. Throughout the scriptures, hesed is a relational term. Uh, think of it as the difference between married and happily married. 
Right? Uh, said isn't just being kind in passing, a momentary kindness. said describes God's faithfulness and loving kindness towards his people. It's about his beautiful commitment to his people. Rahab, then, is asking that the spies treat her as if she's a member of God's family. That the, the spies would hear her asking them to extend the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to her. It's a bold request. She knows her city is about to perish, and yet she, a Canaanite prostitute, asks to be treated as if she were an Israelite. How can she ask for such a thing? Again, by faith. By welcoming the spies the way she did, in reality, she's acting in light of who she believes God might be. By faith, she believed that the only way she could be delivered from death would be to be counted among the people that God shows mercy towards. And that God might even show mercy towards her. The beautiful thing is the spies of Israel agree to her request. Look at verse 14. And the men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives the land, uh, we'll deal kindly and faithfully with you. The spies add faithfully. They get that she's asking for his said, not just fleeting kindness. And together they agree on a sign of the promise, the scarlet cord. The scarlet cord that uh, Rahab used to help them escape, she will tie to the window so that when they come, they'll know to show mercy on her house. And when Israel finally overtakes Jericho, Joshua upholds the promise. If we jump ahead to chapter 6, in verse 23, we read, The young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. When Jericho is being destroyed, Rahab is put outside the camp of Israel. But that's not where she'll remain. She's not kept at arm's length. We're told that she lived in Israel the rest of her days. She's delivered from death and saved alive, but even more, she's ultimately invited into the people of Israel through marriage. She goes on to marry a guy named Salmon. And, And this is just a small, small glimpse of how faithful and kind and loving God was to Rahab. Here's the thing. Rahab asked for Hesed, and God showed it to her. But there is no way she could have understood what Hesed fully meant to God. It's sort of like the difference between barbecue in Vancouver and barbecue everywhere else in the United States. Uh, I moved to Orlando in 2006 for a job at a magazine, and uh, during my first week, I received an email and said, what's your favorite sort of food? And I promptly responded, because it was my first week, right? You want to make a good impression. And I, I said, barbecue. And a few minutes later, another email arrived in my inbox. It was to all the staff, and they said, to celebrate Alistair's arrival this week, uh, we're going to take him out for lunch on Friday, and we're going to go to a barbecue restaurant, to which I was well pleased. Uh, And all week, you know, I had dreams of grills and salmon and chicken and and corn on the cob and all sorts of healthy vegetables. Uh, And, you know, the big day arrived, and 
We got in our cars and we had to go for a bit of a drive. And when we got out of the car and I saw the sign of the restaurant, I knew I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It read, Cecil's Texas-style barbecue. And then, people, I encountered barbecue. Dirty, messy, unhealthy, you know, pulled pork, brisket, barbecue sauce, baked beans, collard, cornbread, bread pudding, all slopped on a piece of paper, not even a plate, just on a tray, savage and delicious. My friends, I tell you, I have been to the mountain. I have tasted the holy food. I expected barbecue, and then I encountered barbecue. <laughs> Rahab expected said, and then she really encountered said. There is no way Rahab could have known how much God had in store for her. She was ultimately welcomed into the very heart of God and what God was doing in the world through his people Israel. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, we get the list of Jesus' genealogy. And who do we find in there? Rahab. God not only accepted Rahab into his people, he brought her into the very lineage of Christ. This is just how far God welcomed his loving kindness and faithfulness to her, that through a Gentile woman, a, a prostitute, a Canaanite, the Son of God would ultimately make his way into the world. Why on earth would God show such kindness to Rahab? Because she had faith. Rahab believed that God really is the kind of God who would welcome her, even her. And in this way, she looked forward in faith to Christ. Jesus' critics called him a friend of sinners because of the people he welcomed. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Rahab was precisely the sort of person that Jesus welcomed. He sat down and ate with tax collectors and sinners and, and dwell in the shock with me. You know, tax collectors by most Jewish perceptions, were dishonest, corrupt traitors who were pawns of the Roman Empire. They extorted taxes from their own people for their oppressors. And Jesus welcomed them. While dining at a religious leader's house, Jesus welcomed a prostitute to the table who let down her hair and, and cleaned his feet with her tears. Letting down your hair in that culture was a symbol reserved for marriage. And Jesus welcomes her. Time and time again, Jesus sat down with people that were too broken or too far gone or abandoned by society. He wasn't afraid of the people who were messy, who didn't have it all together, who lived questionable lives. He welcomed them. He eats with them, the disenfranchised and the stigmatized alike. He extends God's said to them, his loving kindness and faithfulness. And yet the welcome of Jesus goes far beyond the welcome of Rahab. He doesn't just show kindness for kindness. While sitting at the table of a tax collector, Jesus responded to his critics who were saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus welcomed those who had nothing to offer him. Jesus didn't welcome those who had their lives all put together because nobody has their life put together. Because in light of a perfect God, we all crumble. None of us are righteous. Jesus didn't welcome those who deserve his presence because nobody deserves his holy presence. 
He welcomed the sick and the broken and the sinners, those with great need, humbled though, and eager for his presence. But we stubbornly resist recognizing this about ourselves. We refuse to recognize the facts that, um, you know, we deserve the wrath of God. We refuse to accept that left to our own devices, we are among the Canaanites. We do not want to admit that we are perishing because of our disobedience. Often we'll say, we're not sinners, we're fine. Malcolm Muggeridge, great name, brilliantly said this, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. What he's saying is that it doesn't take much to realize that this world is dark and broken. All you have to do is open your eyes. But we'll do everything we can to deny that that same darkness and brokenness cuts through our own lives. More simply, it's undeniable that sin's out there, but we want to deny that it's in here. But scripture always presses us to confront this reality. Jesus says he's a physician for those who are sick. That's why he's a friend of sinners, not because they deserve him, but because they need him. This might leave you thinking, like, why would I ever sign up for a religion, for Christianity, when it just says I'm such a terrible person, that I'm sick? Yes, you know, one of the basic premises of the Christian faith is that you have nothing in and of yourself to offer God, and that you are broken and needy and sinful. But that is not the main premise. Please hear me. It's just how sorry our estate is before God that makes his welcome all the more profound. It's just how sorry our estate is before God that makes his welcome all the more profound. We need Jesus. We need him to be our great physician. We may have been in denial about the depths of our brokenness, but God has seen it all along. And even with who we are in our entirety and all our secrets exposed, Christ welcomes us into God's family with arms outstretched on the cross. Because there is no way for our sins to be dealt with except by Christ being crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's by faith, by accepting Jesus' welcome to us, that we're brought out of death and into life just like Rahab. Rahab reminds us that God doesn't accept, accept some future version of ourselves. He's willing to welcome you as you are, not the perfect, better version of you, the broken, true you, you at your very worst. That's who Christ died for. And that's why you become a Christian. Not because you're so terrible, even though you're terrible and I'm terrible, but because God in his love is all the more profound because he loves us even there and shows us his said, his loving kindness and faithfulness even there. And he shows it to us beyond our wildest dreams and beyond what we could ever deserve, just like he did to Rahab. But welcoming Christ into our lives is scandalous. It means we have to break ties with everything, just like Rahab. We risk it all by accepting the welcome of Christ. Whatever may stand in the way, it has to go. And most of all, we accept our true condition before him, that we need him as the great physician of our souls. 
But when we do, Christ's welcome comes with a promise. We have a better promise than a scarlet cord. We have the promise of the Spirit. The ongoing reminder that God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never give up on us. We're promised that we really are brought from the outside in. We're adopted. We are a part of God's family. We are truly sons and daughters of God. And God will not let us go. It's the promise of Christ's welcome. And when this gets into you, it changes everything. Every week at St. Peter's, we welcome one another in the service, and we do it based off of what Paul wrote in Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We are called to be a welcoming community, but not because we're a bunch of people with uh, nice, you know, big, bright smiles and white, perfect teeth. The way we welcome others into our community and into our own lives is because of our experience of being welcomed into Christ's life. And so we welcome people into our lives, even when it's uncomfortable, even if we don't know if they'll return the welcome, even if we know they're moving in three months, even if it means they're different than us or they make us uncomfortable. We make space and room in our schedules and our lives to welcome people in. And to never get satisfied simply by having our own little circles of friends. Why? Because all that matters is that we extend the profound, loving, breathtaking welcome of God. It's always has said for has said. 